Welcome to Deuterocanons. And welcome back to Deuterocanons. I'm Justin, and today we're going to do part three of, of our look at G.K. Chesterton, H.G. Wells, their, their friendship, their writings, uh, the manner in which their ideas conflicted with each other. And the, the whole context uh, in, in which I want to consider what we're looking at with these two writers is, again, the, the verse that we go back to again and again here at Deuterocanons, which is from Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we conform no longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So if there is a pattern of the world, and if our minds are supposed to be renewed, it's important for us to pay attention to the ideas that are in the world because they reveal to us uh, the pattern of the world. Like that's, that's what God wants our our minds renewed from. So I find it helpful to, on the one hand, consider things like Wells was talking about as expressions of the pattern of the world, but also to see what Christian thinkers have thought and said uh, based upon their understanding of, of the scriptures in, in response to, in response to, the, to those ideas. So here, uh, like I mentioned, uh, today we're going to be uh, looking at how things uh, turned out for Wells in the end. So one of the things that, that G.K. Chesterton pointed out that Wells believed was that science would take charge of the future and that history validated his vague prophecies. So again, that's, that's what Wells believed. Wells saw that in the future, science would be in charge. And so he saw that coming and he said that it was a good thing and Chesterton uh, was taking the opposite position. If you remember back when I was discussing uh, in the last episode Chesterton's short novel, The Napoleon of Notting Hill, uh, there's a character named Barker who is very similar to Wells in that he objected to the actual future his expressed philosophy had up to that point welcomed. So, uh, in other words, as soon as the things prophesied, so to speak, by the materialist, whether that be Wells in reality or the character of Barker in the Napoleon of Notting Hill, like once, once, the, once their ideas actually come about, we find that they end up not liking the situation as much as they had assumed. So in 1945, in the final year, uh, not just of World War II, but also of Wells' own life, he released his final work. And its title is pretty interesting. It's called Mind at the End of Its Tether. <clears throat> Mind at the End of Its Tether. And in that, in that book, uh, it's, it's really, I guess you could say, an extended essay. Wells basically repudiates the entire body of his speculative work. I mean, his, his life, his life's work. Likely unnerved by the unprecedented carnage of World War II, flatly contradicting his faith in the limitless development of an orderly secular life, Wells goes so far in this book, Mine at the End of Its Tether, to mock the title of one of his earlier 
seemingly, as at least he thought, prophetic works. And the title of that is The Pattern of Things to Come. So uh, Wells says, so this is a, a quote, the limit to the orderly secular development of life had seemed to be a definitely fixed one so that it was possible to sketch out the pattern of things to come. But that limit was reached and passed into a hitherto incredible chaos. The more he scrutinized the realities around us, the more difficult it became to sketch out any pattern of things to come. Distance had been abolished. Events had become practically simultaneous throughout the planet. Life had to adapt itself to that or perish. And with the presentation of that ultimatum, the pattern of things to come faded away. In other words, earlier, he thought that he could write book after book after book vaguely outlining the quote-unquote pattern of things to come. It just didn't work out that way. Wells further judges that this chaos he's referring to is an unsparing question that has overwhelmed the writer and was thus convinced that there's no way out or round or through the impasse. It is the end. That is in stark contrast to everything that he had written up to that point. In Wells's prior work, the organized inertia of the masses would develop the what he called collective mind. Uh, the, the Marxists tend to call that class consciousness. Uh, the collective mind necessary to govern the body of the socialist world state, which, by the way, the, the, uh, the connections to Christian imagery, or since it's turned on its head, you might say anti-Christian imagery should be obvious. You have collective mind, uh, you have the body. I mean, so we have like the same imagery that we see in Paul of Christ as the head and the church as the body, except here it's inverted and it's it's cast from a materialist perspective. And so it's the, the collective mind of the people that governs the body of the socialist world state. So, so you see the inversion then in that imagery from what the scriptures talk about. For example, in another book of his, New Worlds for Old, Wells argues that it is only under an intelligent collective mind that any of the dreams of these constructive professions can attain an effective realization which then, he thought, would produce an endlessly progressive and increasingly efficient succession of kinetic utopias. A kinetic utopia, so a progressive utopia, because it can't be utopia, he thought, if it were static. There's not some ideal state that could be attained that would then be sustainable. There would always be the need for movement beyond in what direction, who knows? Uh, his, his outlines are so vague, it's hard to even say. And of course, once he gets to mind at the end, mind at the end of its tether, he ends up lamenting, and, and this is an, another quote from Wells, events now follow one, one another in an entirely untrustworthy sequence. It's interesting that he's, he's no longer trusting the sequence of events when the simple sequence of events is progress itself. Anyway, back to the quote. No one knows what tomorrow will bring forth, but no one but a modern scientific philosopher can accept this untrustworthiness fully. Earlier in his life, Wells had affirmed faith in evolutionary progress as an infallible tenet of socialism. 
and thus of all intelligent modern people. Wells, at the end of his life, vehemently recanted. Further contradicting his younger self, Wells abandoned any notion of what he called, if you remember from uh, the first episode, Goodwill, capital G, capital W, um, which he defined as the beneficent force driving biological and human social evolution in favor of a darker entity that, in mind at the end of its tether, he struggled to even name. Although he claims the universe to be a closed system, uh, thus seeming to negate the possibility of any external interference whatsoever, including goodwill, Wells detected something unknowable that has set its face against us. So for lack of a better term, he decides to call it the antagonism, capital T, capital A. So again, originally, like earlier, earlier on in his writings, he talked about goodwill, capital G, capital W. Now he notices, he senses this, this force, this invincible reality which has endured life for so long by our reckoning and has now turned against it so implacably as to wipe it out. And he calls that the antagonism. Uh, definitively refuting any notion to the contrary, Wells says there is no way out or round or through this existential calamity. In this new light, the formicary that he assumed global socialism to be, he, he then said, is doomed. Its adherents and detractors alike are left helpless as the implacable antagonist kicks or tramples our world to pieces. And in a surge of nihilism, Wells proclaims, endure it or evade it, the end will be the same. But the evasion systems involve unhelpfulness at the least, and in most cases, blind obedience to egotistical leaders, fanatical persecutions, panics, hysterical violence, and cruelty. So the manner in which one deals with these facts that Wells is discussing is nothing more than personal preference, he says, as he readily admits that he himself has no compelling argument to convince the reader that he should not be cruel or mean or cowardly. I mean, that, that you don't get much more nihilistic than that, that he can't muster any reason whatsoever against cruelty, against meanness, and against cowardice. Although Wells would rather humankind ended its story in dignity, kindliness, and generosity, and not like drunken cowards in a daze or poison racks in a sack, he admits freely that this is simply a matter of individual predilection. Although Wells declared that the habitual interest of his life was critical anticipation of everything uh, and, and of everything he asks, to what will this lead? In other words, he, he, he claims that he was always thinking about second and third order consequences. Still, at mind at the end of its tether, he unfortunately reveals that he did not perceive the paradox to which his materialist faith would necessarily lead. But Chesterton did. Chesterton recognized the failure of invoking modernity as a moral, aesthetic, or epistemological first principle. King Auberon, again uh, back from the Napoleon of Notting Hill, King Auberon's medieval pantomime would have been impossible without progressive policies establishing kingship by lottery in the first place. 
And the civil war that ensued could never have erupted without the London populace playing along with Auberon's ironically archaic progressivism. In another one of uh, Chesterton's uh, books that, that, I, that I discussed previously, The Man Who Was Thursday, Lucian Gray, sorry, Lucian uh, Gregory, poet of anarchy, declares, an artist disregards all governments, abolishes all conventions, but then objects to the examples Gabriel Syme levies against him. Syme, a poet of law and order, replies, I beg your pardon, I forgot we had abolished all conventions. So in other words, the progressives turn out to not be nearly as progressive as they think, Wells included. As early as 1905, the same year Wells released A Modern Utopia, Chesterton's nonfiction specified the deficiencies in Wells' well-intentioned wishful thinking. In one book called Heretics, which gives a whole chapter to rebutting Wells, Chesterton asserts that Wells' philosophy, quote, in some sense amounts to a denial of the possibility of philosophy itself, that there are no secure and reliable ideas upon which we can rest with a final mental satisfaction. It will be both clearer, however, and more, assume, and more amusing to quote Mr. Wells himself. Wells says, Nothing endures. Nothing is precise and certain. There is no being but a universal becoming of individualities. He further quotes Wells, affirming that there is no abiding thing in what we know. We change from weaker to stronger lights, and each more powerful light pierces our hitherto opaque foundations and reveals fresh and different opacities below. To which Chesterton counters that, quote, it cannot be true that there is nothing abiding in what we know, for if that were so, we should not know it at all and should not call it knowledge. Essentially, Chesterton finds it absurd that Wells, in arguing against objective reality, against universal truth, assumes an objective universal proposition. As he points out, if there's no abiding thing in what we know, we could not possibly claim to know even that, which strongly suggests that Wells had no philosophical basis for his passionate assumption that goodwill, capital G, capital W, would guide humankind through perpetual, perpetual utopian improvement. His disappointment and disillusionment were all but guaranteed, and Wells saw it in 19, what, what did I say, 1905, 1906... Early, very early. Yeah, 1905. He beat Wells to the punch 40 years ahead of time. When Wells's brilliant mind and optimistic materialist faith came to the end of its quote-unquote tether, in other words, he got to the end of his rope, he recognized these absurdities and inconsistencies to a sufficient extent to repudiate many of his previously held beliefs and even flirted with the possibility of a universal absolute in positing the existence of this antagonist, capital A. But still, he did not arrive at a foundation beneath his formerly perceived and trusted opacities. So in conclusion, if Chesterton would have lived, he, he died uh, several years, I think in the, in the 30s, maybe early 30s, I think Chesterton passed away. But if Chesterton would have lived to critique his friend's final book, I suspect that he would have been characteristically gracious. 
as we as we saw in, in letters that the two exchanged back in episode one. Perhaps Chesterton would have encouraged Wells that if evolution and goodwill turned out to be true after all, then his despondency, and mine at the end of its tether, too shall pass. And perhaps he would write Wells a brief note similar to the following. And this is just speculation on my part, but I try, I'm trying here to, to capture uh, Chesterton's spirit a little bit. My dear H.G., just read your new book, Fear Not, Perhaps your tether will evolve into a banana tree and you and the apes can give humanity another go. So I would just want to, again, encourage you to be aware of the ideas around you. Pay attention to what's happening in the news. Pay attention to what's coming out in literature and art and academia and politics. Pay attention to it because it, they will all be dots that once you start connecting them will reveal the pattern of the world. And the scriptures, the, the Lord himself tells us to, as believers to be aware of these things. And it's through recognizing how bad these ideas are uh, among the patterns of the world. It's recognizing how bad those are that, that we can come to desire God's will, God's way, uh, God's path even more so. And, th and that's the whole point of, of considering Chesterton and Wells. It's really to point to the Lord and how, well, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This has been episode 45 of Deuterocanons. Please like, share, subscribe, comment, or better yet, tell a friend. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Audible, Podbean, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.